Nick at Night is a production of Council Communications. everybody this is the Nick at Night show oh my lord have we got a show for you tonight you won't believe what we got coming up we got a Kathleen Wynn trying to get everything fixed before an election we got all kinds of stuff it's just unbelievable but in the first hour as a matter of fact I'm even going to bring him on right now because I hate leaving people on hold my guest this evening for the first hour is a uh, uh, commentator at large, documentary maker extraordinaire, none other than my good friend John Robson. He's in. He's in on the phone. Good evening, John. Good evening. How are you this evening, sir? I'm just fine, thanks. And yourself? Oh, if I was any better, buddy, I'm not sure I could contain myself. Now, just for those, uh, I should finish up my my desk clearing. Uh, here first. The numbers to reach us tonight are three four three seven zero zero four three nine zero. You can reach us as well as 844-562-4766. If you want to give John uh, talk to John and ask him any questions about his documentaries or um, just ask him to comment on things in general, by all means, please feel free to do that. You can also send me a, an email to nick at latenightcouncil.com. And I got to tell you, there is an updated website coming. Uh, I just can't tell you when, but it'll look really cool. We were talking to the webmaster the other day, and uh, the things he's going to do are just incredible. So, with that said, I want to get uh, right to the right two things now, John. I want to talk to you about your latest uh, about your latest project. But before I get to that, because I think what you're doing is really important, uh, and I won't take any of the thunder away from you. I'll let you tell people what it is. But I want to talk to you for a few minutes at least about. The state of journalism in the world as it is today. I mean, from where I sit, it looks horrible. It really does. I've been, I can't imagine it. I, I don't know of a time when journalism has been so, performs at such a low standard. Is that a fair assessment? Am I, am I right or am I just, just mad because it's, I seem to th see things through rose-colored glasses? Well, I think that you are largely right and to the extent that you're wrong it's because journalism has had previous periods in which it performed horribly so that's not a very encouraging response <laughs> no it's not uh, part of the problem very clearly is this golden internet i joined the world of journalism with impeccable bad timing in 1997 and at that time the daily paper in the city was still a license to print money because people 
needed to advertise in the paper. The big companies needed to advertise in the front section, tell you where you could get a car, where you could get a mattress, that kind of thing. Uh, and and then people advertised in the personals for all the kind of things we would now sell online through eBay and PGG and so forth. And the loss of revenue at a time when the media, I think, has been struggling with its credibility because it, its voice is too uniform. Uh, it is too left-leaning. It sounds too much like an undergraduate sociology paper. The resources are not there. Uh, there aren't enough people on staff. There aren't enough reporters. There isn't much time. And so newspapers go with the gut feeling of their largely journalism school staff and you get something which, in, in a strange way, I think is very uncritical and very credulous. You, you get very little real, hard questioning of orthodoxy. I mean, we, we think we comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable, but by and large, the average newspaper in this country reflects very much the view of the political elite as though it were boldly challenging convention, but it's not. Well, okay, because... I lay a lot of the blame for this in the schools of journalism themselves because of the attitudes of the teachers. It's it, when you teach something, and you know this better than I do, being a teacher yourself. Let me okay. So let me flip this around then. When, as a teacher, how difficult is it to keep your personal biases out of the the um, uh, the curriculum, like in, when you when you are a math teacher, there's there's no real political bias to that. You teach two 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 plus two equals four, unless you're teaching quantum mechanics or calculus or something. But basically, it's a hard science, and there's no room for political discourse. But if you're teaching journalism, humanities, how hard is it to separate your own personal feelings from the curriculum? Well, I think it's absolutely impossible, and I don't encourage anybody to try. What I did when I would, when I'm teaching American history and I go in at the beginning of the, the class and I introduce myself to the students and give them an outline of what we're going to try and do in the course, and I say, you need to know uh, where I'm coming from. And my claim to you is that I'm not biased, I'm opinionated. And, I say, and the difference is this, an opinionated person knows that there are opinions other than their own. They know that these opinions are held by people who are both intelligent and well-meaning. And they will reward a student who intelligently challenges what they have been told. But it is impossible to sort facts into any kind of interpretive framework without having ideas about how the world works and how things fit together. And Goethe said that every fact is already a theory, and I think that's very true. The problem comes in when people – Bill Buckley said liberals are always talking about other points of view, but they're always amazed to find that there are other points of view. It's when you get somebody who thinks that their opinions are the only ones that an intelligent or decent person could possibly hold that you have an atmosphere that is absolutely deadly to education and to free inquiry. And this is not unique to the left. Certainly you run into conservatives who are, can be just as obnoxious, but I think that it is more prevalent on the left because they're convinced that what really matters in this world is that your heart be in the right place. So anybody who doesn't agree with them is necessarily motivated by evil intentions. And why would you give evil intentions space in the classroom? I go into a, co a course, I think that the people who disagree with me are confused, that they have misinterpreted, that it's an error of the intellect more than of the heart. And say, so, well, this is what they think, and this is why they think it, but here's why I think they're wrong. 
but you know the thing about journalism school the best way to keep bias out of journalism school would be very simple not to have journalism school it, it is an error of uh, to think that journalism is a kind of, a matter of technique and is best taught by experts in sterile classrooms journalism is a craft it is best taught on the job and I always said this. I mean, these days there aren't really jobs in journalism, so why you'd go to journalism school, I can't imagine. But like myself, I did not go to J school. I was hired by the newspaper because I had strong opinions and I was a good writer. And essentially they took me in and they taught me the job. Well, that's the way the old in the old school, and when I say old, I'm talking about uh, the, in the days of people like Ross Monroe. I don't know that Ross Monroe, and for the listener who doesn't know who he is, he was a wartime correspondent who covered uh, World War II and, I believe, Korea, and did so flying, for lack of a better term, by the seat of his pants. And he just went out, and the only thing that mattered to him was getting the story straight. He didn't go to J school. And as a matter of fact, uh, and John, you can set me straight on this, but I think you and I are already in agreement on this, going to J school is almost um, detrimental to becoming a good journalist because you have preconditioned ideas put into your head that you wouldn't otherwise hold if it wasn't for the prof passing on his, in many cases, left-wing bias to a young mind who should develop it on its own. Maybe left-wing, maybe right-wing, but it should grow grow into those attitudes over time. And, and a young person should be going to university and studying history or philosophy or English or engineering, learning about the world. And I remember when I came into the paper, one of the things I knew nothing about was how to lay out a page. And the managing editor was obliged at certain points to threaten me with immediate extinction if I did not grasp the principle that you start with the art. But it only took a couple of conversations where he was grasping my throat and holding me up against the pillar before I understood <laughs> this idea. But when it came to filling the paper with content or judging op-ed submissions, I understood what good writing looked like and I understood what clear thinking looked like. And I knew how to pick a range of opinions. And that's the kind of stuff, it's this pseudo-professionalism um, and this illusion of actually, it's like MBAs. Years ago, when I was in grad school, I had Walt Rostow as one of my professors, a distinguished if eccentric economist and formerly Lyndon Johnson's national security advisor. And Rostow said one of the things we really ought to do in order to help the American economy perform better is close all the business schools. What, what is an MBA? What technique is it that you have mastered? And I know Walter Badgett uh, claimed that Government was basically the same kind of thing. It was a neutral art of administration. He said all mountains look the same from the top. So that to be a good deputy minister of, say, finance, you didn't have to know anything about finance. You didn't have to know about the principles of finance. You didn't have to know about government policy, past budgets. You had to understand the supposed science of management. But I'd say there is no science of management. And so all these are, these are all pseudo-specialties that don't really have any content what is it that you learn in journalism school are you learning about politics are you learning about you know fires are you learning about municipal infrastructure are you learning about the cultural life of the community i don't know what you're doing in there but everything worth knowing about actually being a journalist can be taught under fire in three months so for heaven's sakes why would you spend years not studying the subject matter you're going to write about, especially because once you get into a newspaper or a radio station, everything is chop, chop, chop. The deadline is flying at you ferociously. If you don't know something about the subject when the editor gives you the assignment, you don't have time to find out about it. So I, I think yeah. it's just, it, it, it's in many ways a great waste of time. And then the, the problem is very real that journalism schools are staffed by people with, of particular leanings. 
Um, and the result is that you get people coming out into the newspaper who are very, very poorly prepared to think about the stories they're covering. Now, how? Okay, so I, I totally agree with you on that. I, because I, you and I, I think, uh, like uh, in my own short, uh, in my own time in the media, uh, in a terrestrial radio station, now, I didn't go to broadcast school, J school, anything like that. I just knew how to tell a story, and if there was any claim to fame on my part, I could identify with the man on the street. And that you don't learn in school. That comes from life experience. So if you're an, how, how is it then that someone who wants to pursue that, uh, I almost want to say what advice would you give him, but how difficult is it given the fact that um, the mainstream media, as we understand it today, is already predisposed to having kids come out of school and plunk them into jobs they're ill-prepared for, it's almost like an assembly line. Like they don't have any room for creativity. They don't allow people to grow into the jobs. You've got to know it right off the bat off the, on the first day. And there's no room for personal we, growth within that. We, and, and how would you – I mean if you wanted to get a job at a newspaper, find me one that's hiring for one thing. But for yeah, another, that's true. what would you say to the guy who might hire you? How would you convince them? If you're not saying, well, I got straight A's in journalism school, and here are three letters of reference from professors of journalism, what would you tell them that would help them know that you were the right person for the job, and, and how would you get through? But, uh, you know, as with anything else, if you can get the interview, presumably you can show them that you are intelligent and that you bring a lively perspective to things, then I think you've got a chance um, because they need people who can produce readable copy, and especially in these days with the economics being so troubled, you cannot afford to drive your readers away with boredom. But again, I, I fear that too many newspapers like the restaurant that deals with declining sales by watering the soup, uh, you know, it helps you meet payroll at the end of the day, but it, it, it drives customers away. And one thing we clearly we need to do is learn how to um, put up not a big paywall, but to charge you know, micropayments, very small amounts, so that we can afford to put our stuff out there and not insist that somebody make a $100 a year commitment before they can read 10 of our articles. And that's harder than it would otherwise be because in Canada, the CBC is giving the stuff away free. Mm -hmm. uh, however, the downside is, of course, you've got to get the CBC stuff if that's what you're <laughs> going to do. Yeah. But, but we've, I, have, I have said this for years, and I wrote a piece for C2C Journal about this in Back to the Future. Prior to the 19th, very, very late 19th century, newspapers and reviews you know, and, and journals made money selling content to an audience. When we got the mass production of goods, mass production of newspapers, and mass advertising, we had a happy century-long ride selling audiences to advertisers. You charged enough to subscribe to the newspaper that people didn't just take a big stack of them and dump them somewhere. But fundamentally, the only reason to have paid subscriptions was to prove to advertisers that people liked your paper enough to read it. And radio, they didn't even bother. They just gave it away. They no TV. The advertisers would pay the freight in return for the audience's eyeballs. But we can't do that anymore. People want to buy something. They go online to look for it, whether it is new or used, expensive or cheap. Ad trying to find new ways to advertise, trying to advertise online is a classic old wine and new bottles. It's not going to work. What they have to get back to is selling content to an engaged audience. That means having a point of view, unapologetic, feisty. Uh, there's lots of room for lots of different opinions here and there in the world. It's not going to be monolithic by any means. But to go out and tell people, we will give you news that is reliable. Somebody fact-checked it. News that is relevant to your view of the world and your interests. 
And my third R is use it as rationed. Because if you sign up for news feeds, you get 500 stories a day. Well, nobody can cope with that. The great thing about the morning paper is if you gave it half an hour or so at the beginning of the day, you got to the end of it, and you got permission to stop and go about your life, then you were reasonably well informed. <laughs> You'd be okay till the next morning. And if it was breaking news, it'd be on TV. Mm-hmm. So there is really still a market for this. But it, we have to rethink this idea that someday the advertisers will come back. They won't. We have got to go where the audience is, and we've got to treat the audience as an intelligent and discerning consumer. I mean, I, it bothers me that if you really want to get clicks online, you say this will shock you. I can't believe the number of stories that say something like that will shock you, especially in the modern world. What shocks us now? Right. But the, because the Internet cuts down the cost because you're not running trucks full of like, paper and ink and all these presses, you can afford to put out a quality product by spending the money on the content creators so you don't need as big an audience. But journalists are terribly stuck in this model of the 20th century, I think. It was a great ride while it lasted, but it's over. Well, that is a great segue uh, into your your latest endeavor and in what you're doing in generally with making documentaries. So I'm going to hold you there. I have a, sh- a short commercial play. So just stay right there. We'll have more with John Robson because you're going to want to hear this. He's on, I think he's on to the answer, and he's been leading up to this, prepping us for this next part of the conversation, doing it masterfully, I might add. All right, John, you just stay right there. I have to play a little piece of music here right there, and as soon as that's done, we'll be back with John Robson right after this. manager and CEO of the Greater Ottawa Truckers Association, the voice of independent truckers in the Ottawa area, and proud supporters of Nick at Night. Every day we go to work to help build a better eastern Ontario, and safety is our top priority. Every start of the shift, our drivers perform inspections on their truck, so we ensure that our drivers go home to their families each night, and you, the public, have confidence that the big truck beside you is safe. If you have any issues relating to any size truck, I encourage you to contact me at 613-738-1639. Let's build a better fatality-free Ottawa together. All right, folks, the numbers are 343-700-4390-844-562-4766. My guest is commentator at large and documentary uh, filmmaker extraordinaire, uh, Mr. John Robson. Uh, Thanks for staying with us, John. I appreciate that. My pleasure. uh, We segued really nicely into this. Uh, Well done, by the way. That was really good. I want to be before you tell us about our particular your particular project, the one you're working on now. And I'm not going to take much time to do this. How did you get into the idea? Where where did the idea come from to start making documentaries? Your first one was a really well done piece about the Magna Carta, 
and that was, I think, pretty well received. A lot of people learned a lot about it, including yours truly. And um, you went on to do one that, so this, I think, is your third one. How did it all get started? Actually, it didn't start with Magna Carta. It started when I was still at Sun News Network. And uh, the boss sent me with a cameraman to France and Belgium to film for the 100th anniversary of the start of World War I. And, and I'm very grateful. Corey just gave me carte blanche to go over there and do what I thought I should do. And so I went over and we filmed. It was just a terrific experience. And the story of the war began to unfold in my mind and on camera as a kind of vindication of a difficult war. And then I got back with all this footage. And I couldn't get an editor because we were too busy surviving the day-to-day. And after about a month, I realized all of this was going to be lost if I didn't learn to put it together. And so I went to the tech guys and said, can we run this editing software on a laptop? And they said, oh, no, 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 very special. Well, so, of course, (laughs) I went to the manufacturer's website, found the trial version, downloaded it, ran it on my laptop. And I started putting the pieces together. And it wasn't just that I was dedicated to the project, though I was, and then I got some outstanding help as we went along. I found that putting a documentary together is fun. The, the process of assembling the elements in the right order, getting the timing right, getting the music, getting the covering footage, all of that. So the first documentary was actually The Great War Remembered. Then when we realized that Sun News Network was in parlous condition, uh, my wife said, let's crowdfund a film. Let's do Magna Carta, the 800th anniversary. So then this was an interesting thought because crowdfunding has kind of taken off in the United States, but do Canadians respond to this kind of thing or have they been too conditioned to let government do it? And we said, no, you know what? I believe they'll respond. So we started a Kickstarter campaign and we looked at it and said, well, how much money do we need? You know, and at one point Brigitte said, well, I think maybe you could raise 50,000. I said, you know what? I need 75 to make it. Let us have faith in Canadians that we will get the money. And I said, we need 3,000 people to put in $25. What actually happened is that just over 1,200 people put in an average of 70. And that was everywhere from $1 up to 1,500. Wow. Mostly small contributions. Mm-hmm. And some people would say, okay, well, I sort of understand how you're funding it. But how are you, you going to show it? How are you going to get it on the CBC or on CTV? What are you going to do? And I said, no, no, we, we're done with the old model. We are raising the money directly from Canadians. We are not going to the big granting outfits. We're not getting money from the government. We're not getting some big broadcast contract. And when it is done, we're going to distribute it the same way, straight to the people. This is the 21st century model. I personally might rather live in the 13th century, but since modernity is here, <laughs> we are going to bypass the big institutional hierarchical structures at both ends, at the funding end and at the distribution end. And so it's on YouTube. It has had something like 11,000 views at this point. We're very, very pleased by that. Mm-hmm. We've continued to make documentaries. Some are a little more specialized than others. Our one on fixing the Constitution has not uh, apparently become a bestseller, but you never do know. And uh, But the model works, and this is how we get around all the impediments to intelligent discussion by decentralization, by taking advantage of what's good about the Internet and the, the technology that allows we made the Magna Carta documentary. We edited it on two Microsoft Surface Pro 3s, the computer and the body of a tablet. And uh, that, we now have a desktop because some of we're getting a little better at the graphics and they, it kind of overpowers the surfaces when you, when you try and output the final product. It can take mm-hmm. forever. Uh, but again, I'm talking about a computer that costs $1,600, not one that costs 16000 Right. Um, so that's what we've been doing, which I guess is my cue to talk about the next one. That's uh, so that brings us to the next one. If I well, tell us what it's about and uh, what made you want to do it. 
The next one is called The Environment, A True Story, and it is going to compare what the alarmists are saying about man-made global warming with what we actually know about the past history of the Earth's climate. And I'm making it because this is a critical public policy issue. Governments have doubled down on this with carbon taxes and everything. The idea that man-made CO2 is going to cause the Earth to become essentially uninhabitable, at least for civilized human beings. And because intellectual integrity demands that we stand up against bad science and bullying. It is amazing. And, and if you read, again, you read the conventional media here, they, they really are culpable here. They echo chamber the politicians. They're not speaking truth to power. They're telling you there's a scientific consensus that only maniacs and packs in the pay of the energy industry dispute that the environment is undergoing unprecedented changes, that we know human beings are primarily responsible, and if we don't stop, we face catastrophe. Every one of those things is demonstrably false. You look at what we know about the Earth going back 500 years, going back 10,000 years, going back 5 million years, going back 500 million years, and we do know a good deal, though there's much uncertainty. But when you look at what we know, you know carbon dioxide is not the driver of global temperature. We have a long record of temperature changes, sometimes abrupt, sometimes problematic, that clearly are not caused by changes in atmospheric CO2. We know that the climate has been changing, again, often with dramatic suddenness, long before humans were even on the Earth, let alone in a position to release greenhouse gases in any quantity. And we know that the Earth has been warmer than it is today, including since the last retreat of the glaciers. The medieval warm period was warmer than it is today. The Roman warm period probably was. The Minoan warm period certainly was. And in those days, the Earth was not what Al Gore says, a nature hike through the book of Revelation. It was a very hospitable place. In Roman times, North Africa was the breadbasket of the empire. It was lush. It was moist. You didn't have droughts and floods happening at the same time, as Al Gore says. You don't have raging wildfires. You don't have species extinctions. All the stuff they're predicting. And we know, in fact, that for most of its history, the Earth has been quite a bit warmer, maybe 10 degrees centigrade warmer than it is today. And yet you think about the planet at the time of the dinosaurs. Now, the dinosaurs were an issue, right? T-Rex mm. can spoil your entire day. <laughs> but if you look at reconstructions, the Earth looks like the place you'd go for a Caribbean vacation. It looks really nice. So, but we also see CO2 levels over the long run of geology, have no relationship to temperature. Over the last million years, they seem to track reasonably closely, but temperature is leading the dance. As the Earth warms, more CO2 is released, not the other way around. Al Gore's An Inconvenient Truth misrepresented that so badly that a British court ruled that it couldn't be shown in schools without a corrective. And, and we know even looking at these cycles, since the last retreat of the glaciers, we're still in an ice age. We still have significant polar ice. But in the last 12,000 years, it's been comparatively warm in a very cool period. And we know that these cycles that give you the Minoan warm period, and then you, you get this cold, then you get the Roman warm period, then you get the Dark Ages, then you get the medieval warm period, and you know the Vikings are sailing to Iceland and Greenland, and people are growing grapes in England and that sort of thing. And then you get what's called the Little Ice Age. It becomes cold. The 16th and 17th centuries in particular are very cold. Man didn't cause that. The Little Ice Age really started to end in the 19th century. And of course, yes, the temperature's been rising since Prince Albert died. 
And we know this. This is not a state secret. If you, we went to Glacier Bay National Park on National Advanced Freedom Cruise, and they had these lovely brochures of the park showing the glaciers out into the Pacific in 1700 and then retreating throughout the 18th and 19th centuries and showing us all where they'd been. And then they said, and so they've been you know, up the head of the um, bay since 1900, but now man is causing it. This is preposterous. If the Earth has been warming for natural reasons since the mid-19th century, and the trend has continued into the late 20th century, it, to suggest that the effect continues unabated, but the cause changes in 1970, man boots nature down the stairs and starts setting the place on fire. That's not science. Science cannot operate if the laws of cause and effect change. And so the, there's a... A threat, not just that we're going to have bad policy, though we are, not just that we will cripple our ability to respond to whatever the climate is doing for natural reasons, but honesty requires someone to stand up and blow the whistle on this and say the politicians are panicking or worse, they're doing it on purpose so they get more money and power. The reputable opinion is afraid to stand up to it. Scientists are being bullied, and ordinary people are being bullied, and that's intolerable. That's not how free societies conduct their affairs. Okay, well, let me ask you this, because a couple of questions have come to mind while you were speaking. First of all, <clears throat> you, you kind of answered it, but I'll ask it anyway. What's behind, if it's not natural, like if, if it's not possible for us to cause this, and I've been on that page since day one. Uh, you know, I've been saying, look, plant food is not the problem. Uh, th this is a natural rhythm of the earth, and it's no different than a thousand times before. So what is behind it? If it's not science, if it's not hard science that's, you know, been, been uh, uh, getting a consensus of science is the last argument any scientist trying to prove a point would ever raise. So if it's not about consensus, if it's not about, you know, concern for the environment, what's driving this whole green, let's call it a scam, because that's what it is. Well, you know, there, there are a number of people who have talked about, the, the people like Maurice Strong, the real hardcore zealots who are behind the UN machinery. And uh, it's a combination of, you know, doing well by doing good. Maurice Strong wound up with a lot of money for all kinds of ways that really didn't bear examination. Um, but also this, this weird ideological commitment to one world government to a rule by the elite to a dramatic change in the way that we live. The, the, the usual stuff that's been behind radicalism since the invention of malcontents. But you see, to me, these people wouldn't matter if they were gathered in a room somewhere plotting. The problem is a lot of well-meaning people, intelligent people, follow public debate, they're very concerned about the environment. They have been misled. And whatever the reason for this, what we need to do now is we need to dispel these illusions. We need to stand up pleasantly but firmly and say, no, what you're told, everything you're being told, including that there's a scientific consensus, this idea that 97% of scientists agree is based on four papers whose methodology is so bad it wouldn't make convincing satire. For example, one of these studies, they sent out online surveys to over 10,000 scientists. They got back over 3,000 replies. From those, they selected 79, of whom 77 endorsed the extreme alarmist position. They said, well, 77 or 79, that's 97%. Yeah, but 79 or 77 out of over 3,000, right? What yeah. kind of percentage is that? It's amazing <laughs> that they get away with this stuff. Yet Barack Obama tweeted, 97% of scientists say this. And I've had some responses to the project, and, and I'm sure I'll get more of this. And people do say, oh, well, you're not a scientist, man. You shouldn't talk about it. 
But they didn't say that when Al Gore made his film. Al Gore is not a scientist. He has no science background. Elizabeth May is not a scientist. Well, you she know, had a degree in restaurant management, then one in law. Um, Barack Obama. And besides, we don't leave public policy to experts. We don't say only accountants can vote on the budget. We don't say only doctors can vote on health care. We don't say only economists can vote on tax policy. And we don't say only scientists get a voice on climate change, because how would we, the intelligent voters, know which scientists to believe? At some point, non-scientists have to make judgments. Well, isn't and it, people also overlook it. Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, isn't it the job of the scientific community to make, and I don't want to sound sim- make it sound like they're geniuses talking to, to lab rats, but isn't it the job of the scientific community to explain their point of view uh, and their their reasons and their logic in ways that laymen can understand and make decisions on. The fact that the, the idea that you have to be a scientist to have anything to say about it is anathema to our system because, as you point out, we don't let account. We, we, we have more than just accountants voting on the budget. It's the job of the scientific community to explain itself well enough so the average person can understand it and make an intelligent decision based on it. And I think they've been falling flat on their face about that. Yeah, there are certainly scientists who have spoken up, and there are more than you might think who've said, I can't stand this anymore. But remember, a lot of people do not go into science because they enjoy public controversy. And so the field has rather been left to the zealots, the IPCC in particular. is a small group of scientists who peer review one another's papers and publish together and so on, who have brought a political style into a field where it's, it doesn't really belong. But yeah, fundamentally, I think Einstein is reputed to have said, and perhaps he really did, if you can't explain your science to a six-year-old, you don't really understand it. Yeah, I guess that's what and I was trying to say. I was going to say also, in this respect, remember, climate science at a specialized level isn't one discipline. It is a series of only very loosely related disciplines that are very complicated. Astrophysics is critical because the sun plays a huge role in the Earth's climate. And, so, and the oceans... The effect of oceans as heat sinks is enormously important. And someone who's an astrophysicist isn't going to know much about paleogeology and vice versa. So even the scientists in most of the critical specialties, they are not experts. But they must talk to each other and they must talk to us. And there's so much that is known and has been said by scientists complaining about this misuse of science. And the documentary will make clear there's a lot that we don't know. I don't know what drives climate, and nobody really does. It's to do with eccentricities in the Earth's orbit. It's to do with processes going on within the sun. They've detected warming on Mars and on one of Neptune's moons. Well, we sure didn't cause that, did we? No, no, we didn't. But we need to know if we don't know. I mean, sometimes in life, you don't know things you need to know. No matter how much you need to know them, they don't become clear to you because of the urgency of their doing it. And so we need to be ready for changes. I would take one small example. The last glaciation ended 12,000 years ago, and the Earth began to warm. And there's a sudden precipitous drop. It's called the Younger Dryas. And in a period of decades, maybe ye- years, the Earth's temperature fell by f- five degrees possibly. Nobody knows why it happened. At one point, they thought that the melting glacier water had created a huge lake in North America, and then it burst its ice dam, flowed down the St. Lawrence Valley, and disrupted the ocean currents in the North Atlantic. Other people say maybe there was a meteor impact, but they don't know why this happened. Well, what if it happened again? What if the Earth suddenly cooled five degrees in the space of decades? We would be scrambling to prevent mass death. 
And we would not be well-placed to do it if we gutted our energy sector because we falsely believed that carbon dioxide was the control knob to the planet's thermostat. So let us not cripple our ability to respond because there is much that we do not know about climate, and I think we will never know. It will never be possible to model it using linear algebra. All right, let me ask you this, because there is an element to this that is beyond the science. You can explain the science. You can... can what you're trying to do, and I think, and this is part of the reason why I get so upset when I see so much of this gobbledygook woven into my children's uh, uh, curriculum that they're learning at school, is you're trying to fight an emotional battle with logic and reason. How do you win that fight? Like, okay, I understand the, the point of the documentary, and I think it's a brilliant idea, and I absolutely want everybody listening to support it and tell everybody else to help support it because it's something that needs to be done. But in the long game, isn't it true that we have to find a way to get people to make an admission that they've been wrong all along for those, like maybe not the David Suzuki's and the Al Gore's of the world. They'll never turn around because they've got too much political capital in what they've been selling all along. But the other average Joe who believed this stuff have to not only admit they were wrong, but they've been lied to and didn't pick it up. So now you've got to turn them around emotionally and get them to go the other way. How do you do that if you're using science and logic and reason? Well, yeah. You, first of all, you're right. We didn't defeat communism by getting the communists to switch sides, at least not all of them. Although as somebody said the Cold War was a fight between communists and ex-communists. People like Whitaker Chambers were pivotal. And the scientists... Like the people who wrote this great book, The Neglected Son, who used to go around showing the IPCC's alarmist charts and then started to look into the science. These people are invaluable aids to us. But we need to meet people where they are. You know, when I teach university, I talk to my classes and I say, I look out at you and I don't know who you are, where you're from, what you think or anything. But I can confidently say that the, virtually every person sitting in this class is anti-racist and is an environmentalist. And then I do this partly because then I have to explain to them that there was a time when environmentalism was eccentric and before that it didn't exist. And how, how did the, this come about? But we are surrounded by people who are deeply concerned about the planet Earth. And if they think you're not, they will not listen to anything else you say. And so you need to meet them where they are and explain and express your profound attachment to the environment before they will listen to a claim that this problem is not real. Because if they think you don't care about the environment, you're not going to get anywhere. But my green credentials, I once was having a discussion with David Suzuki prior to a a semi-debate, semi-discussion that I had with him publicly. And and he admitted to me that his children said that they didn't really really think he should have a television at his cottage. And I looked down my nose at him and said, ew, well, I grew up at a cottage that did not have electricity. And I did. (laughs) And my fondest childhood memories are of this place on Georgian Bay that did not have hot running water. (laughs) that did not have a toilet inside after I was about 10. Um, I cannot, I'm like Whitaker Chambers, I cannot live without close contact with nature. I cannot, I cannot flourish. And so you make that clear. And then you tell them that we are not going to protect the environment if we don't think straight. And that this whole global warming thing is monstrously bad science pushed in an aggressive tone. And I think a lot of people don't like the bullying tone, as a matter of fact. I think it's one of the great weaknesses of the alarmists is their incapacity to be civil to people with whom they disagree. I'll take a, a trivial example. I was flying down to Washington for this Heartland Institute conference on global warming, which is a wonderful conference. And I was chatting with my seatmate, a very pleasant young man and so on. And then um, I mentioned that I was going to a conference on climate change, and he said, oh, I'd like to punch those climate deniers right in the face. 
And, that, and this is not a man prone to threatening to punch people in the face. I'm sure not to doing it. And, and I said to him, well, you know, see if you can resist the impulse because you're sitting next to one. And he looked at me in amazement. But I said, well, here's the thing. There's just so much that we know, and I told him what some of it was, that doesn't fit the theory. And within 20 minutes, I had him at least listening respectfully and talking pleasantly to me. Um, and I think partly because that, that initial impulse of wanting to punch somebody is one that he was not terribly proud of. So there are all kinds of things that we can do if we handle the matter with an emotional as well as intellectual intelligence to say to people, there's a lot to worry about in the climate. There's a lot to worry about in the environment, but not that man-made CO2 is going to destroy the place. The, 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 the evidence is in, and we know that theory is wrong. So let's get rid of it in the name of our integrity and then start devoting our attention to what does matter, both protecting the environment and making sure that people have a decent life. Because one of the worst environmental problems in this world is that millions of people – Hundreds of millions of people in Africa and in India and in China who don't have electricity and who burn dung and wood inside hovels and the smoke gets in their eyes, it gets in their lungs, it poisons their kids. These are terrible things to subject people to. And we don't want this. And, and the average well-meaning environmentalist is horrified by world poverty. So we'd say if we destroy the best hope for these people to enjoy a decent life, for no good reason, we will have done an awful thing. So there are all kinds of ways that you can reach people on this, provided you understand who your audience is and what you need to say to them so that they will not immediately conclude that you are a monster. Okay, and that all makes sense. Like <clears throat> That's why I wanted to. Uh, I asked the question, because there has to be a way to turn the ship around. I wasn't trying to paint a gloom and doom picture that there is just no way, because you're trying to use logic to fight emotion. And in a straight-up fight, you're going to lose that every time. But one of the things in the—we're going to take a break here in a few minutes, but leading up to the break, let's talk about where you are in the uh, process of putting this documentary together, because I want people to support it. So tell us, um, you know, where you are with funding, where you are with production, how things are going overall, and uh, when you see production coming to a halt and we get a chance to have a look at this. Well, first of all, this was another Kickstarter-funded project. The Kickstarter campaign finished on the 16th, and we made our target. Oh, congratulations. Our minimum target was $50,000, and we made it. So the documentary will go ahead. Excellent. But we still need more resources, uh, especially if there's going to be proper travel. Uh, we need to renew our gear. We've been using the same cameras and stuff in a world where things change very quickly. We've been using them for three years, and they are wearing out. Um, if people want to support the documentary, they can go to my website. That's johnrobson.ca, and there are ways to support my work, or they can email me at jr at johnrobson.ca, and I'm, I can tell them how to, how to help us. In terms of the research, I've been researching the topic for 20 years, and I'm ready to go. <laughs> In terms of production, uh, there is a good deal to be done. There is filming. There are people to interview. And there is also, uh, there's going to be a great deal more graphic work in this one than in previous documentaries, because obviously I can't go back to the Jurassic, so <laughs> we're going to have to do this some other way. Um, and that's resource-intensive, and that's time-consuming. Nevertheless, the goal is to have it done by September. This is a, an important issue. It's an urgent issue. You look at the, the, tax, the plans of the openly published, the Ontario government, the B.C. government, the New Brunswick government, and others, an 80% reduction in CO2 emissions by the year 2050. 
which maybe you and I aren't going to be around for, but that's only a third of a century away. And if we have an 80% reduction, it doesn't just mean that the oil and gas industry are going to the guillotine, though they are. It means we need to use 80% less fuel to heat our homes, cook our food, and get around. It's just this not possible. incredible. It's going to be a disaster for our lifestyle. And it's all for nothing because CO2, as you said, is plant food. And they pump it into greenhouses. Yep. There is no realistic reason to think the earth will become a less pleasant place if we get a few more parts per million of CO2. And that was, in fact, there's a strong argument. Patrick Moore, a former Greenpeace uh, co-founder and since uh, has discovered sanity in all sorts of ways. <laughs> the earth is in a CO2 famine. See, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere has been dropping precipitously for millions of years. And we were getting dangerously close to the level at which plants can't survive. In fact, the green revolution may owe more to increasing CO2 in the atmosphere than it does to anything else. And it has kept hundreds of millions of people from starving to death. All right. With that, I'm going to hold you there. I have to take that break. So you stay right there. We'll be back right after this with more with John Robson on The Nick at Night Show. For 17 years, I've been taking my cars to Irwin's Automotion. 17 years ago, Irwin was renting space on the corner of Bank and Heron. His encyclopedic knowledge of all things mechanical and his no-bull honesty has resulted in his second move. He now operates a huge facility on Cleopatra, eight bays, and an expert staff that operate all in the same wavelength. Honesty, integrity, try to save the customers some money and headaches. But fix it right the first time. Irwin's Out of Motion, 34, Cleopatra. Tell them Council sent you. That'll make them smile. All right. The numbers here again are 343 844-562-4766. You can send me an email to nick at CFRA. <coughs> sorry, nick at night <laughs> at latenightcouncil.com. And you can also send me a message on Facebook. Any means you can think of to communicate is certainly okay with me. All right, let's get back to John. Um, all right, John, uh, once you get through with this project, what's in the works for, have you thought about what's next? There, there are several possibilities. There are There is always more you can do than there are resources to do it. Um, I, 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 first of all, I'll tell you, there's one eccentric project I would love to do, which is to do a, a history of architecture and ask how did we get from buildings being nice to buildings being horrible. <laughs> would people want to see that sufficiently to crowdfund it? I don't know. Uh, Magna Carta proved there's a huge interest in history. It might, be, it might be very popular or people might go, no, man, you're nuts. So don't do that. There's another one I'd love to do, which is Israel for Canadians. To give people, I, I got to go to Israel again. I'm O. Ezra Levantis. It was a trip that he uh, got me in touch with back in 2005. And I, I loved Israel. I thought it was a wonderful place. I think Canadians need to know more about the only democracy in the Middle East and the extent to which Israel is demonized 
it's amazing that they get away with it. Um, and it is, it, frankly, it's quite sinister. And I think that if, if, if people knew more about Israel, they would see the whole Middle East in a very different light. I, mean, I know a lot of people, probably especially listeners to this show, uh, already are very favorably disposed toward Israel. But uh, that's one that I really do think needs to be done. Um, so there are there are several possibilities. Um, but, yeah, along uh, that vein. Here's, first things first, I've got to get the environment one. Well, made. here's one, and it's a pet project of mine. Um, I've had it on the back burner for a long time. I would lo- I would love to make a feature film, but a documentary. It certainly needs to be. Re- there are a couple documentaries out there about it, and I'm referring to our last surviving World War II tribal, HMCS Haida, which now resides in Hamilton Harbor, because Sheila Cop stole it from Toronto. Anyway, <laughs> excuse me. What I would like to see is a documentary made on that most remarkable ship and her captain. Uh, during her wartime years, um, Harry DeWolf, who was a remarkable man. Uh, calm, cool, collected, very meek and mild, but one of the deadliest sailors we ever set to sea. And the ship is right there. There's tons of information available. Uh, the hard part, of course, I, was, I wanted to make it a feature movie to put in theaters and so on, but try to find funding for that. The Americans would do it in a heartbeat, but Canadians are a little shy if they won't do one about Blue Nose, it's hard to find money. It's hard to imagine them wanting to do one about uh, Haida. But is that something that you might be interested in? Well, it, it sounds like a great project. And, and again, you know, I do, because I'm always involved in fundraising. People may not understand. Yes, I write for the National Post. Yes, I do occasionally teach courses at the University of Ottawa, but I'm not on staff with either organization. I'm a freelancer. Mm-hmm. I get paid piecework wages. I have no pension plan. I have no job security, nothing. I really am dependent upon the crowdfunding and on the people who also sponsor me through PayPal or Patreon, making monthly pledges, even just a few dollars. But I know that there are other things that people need to spend their money on. They've got families to feed and support. They have charities they need to give to. They tithe at churches, all kinds of demands on their money. So I understand why it's, you know, it gets a bit tiresome. People keep saying, spare change, spare change. Yeah, really. But if we want to sustain a civic infrastructure, as they call it in this country, if we want to have organizations that connect Canadians together that are not governmental in nature, and the more government takes, the weaker we get, right? It, they seem to have all this money, but it all comes from us. It, it is necessary, if, if a project like that were to get off the ground, and it, it's interesting, I have been to the battleship North Carolina, a very decorated American warship for the yes, Second it is. War, and it was headed straight for the scrap heap until children in North Carolina started putting in nickels from their lunch money to preserve it around 1960, when North Carolina was a very poor backward state, and yet somehow the kids found enough nickels to preserve that great vessel. And so maybe, also my experience has been, Nick, that people love history. Magna Carta got far and away the most uh, sponsors of any of our documentary projects, uh, more than double what any of the others have gotten. Once on CFRA, Brigitte and I did a show um, featuring Andrew Roberts' book, What If?, the collection of counterfactuals in history, and the phone rang off the wall. People couldn't get enough of it. They loved it. They had their own scenarios, books they wanted to recommend. So you might find a huge response to that. Um, People have a hunger for their past, and not for the boring air stats. Oh, we've always had big government past that you get too often given these days. Well, I remember... Real history... I remember when I was still on the radio that I did that series a few years ago called Answer the Call. And the reviews on that, and it was only just me and uh, 
you know, I had uh, uh, somebody helping me in the background with editing and sound effects. But boy, that the people just loved that. They absolutely, it was only 90 seconds of our military history. Um, and I think you and I talked about it once on when you were subbing in. Uh, we just chatted about it briefly. We were talking about uh, mental health. It's on YouTube somewhere. Anyway, long story short, I, I completely agree with you about how people have a passion. Once they're introduced to, I've always said, Canadian history is a lot of things, but boring isn't one of them. Everything from the Plains of Abraham, yeah. which is where I draw the line and say this is the beginning of Canadian history, right up to what happened in Afghanistan, and, and even more recent than that. It's fascinating. It's full of, it's everything. It's got villains. It's got heroes. It's got amazing people doing incredible things. It's got ordinary people doing extraordinary things. And everybody says it's boring. They just don't know it. Yeah, and Canadians are, uh, and this is the point that we stressed. And I, you know, we did a constitutional trilogy. We did Magna Carta. We did fixing the Constitution. We did the right to bear arms. And we talked about this. Canadians are rugged individualists, self-reliant, inventive, determined people. This continent was not settled by people who waited for George or King George to do it. It was people who seized the initiative and made it happen. And that's a story. Young people today, just as they're starved of real food, they are starved of real history, and I think they want it. I mean, the situation is desperate, plainly, but the situation has been desperate through most of human history. Oh, I, I, right at the beginning, we talked about journalism. The journalism in the 30s, the way they covered Hitler and Stalin, you couldn't have anything worse than that. Well, that's true. And I wouldn't trade modern times for the 30s. The, no. the desperate feeling that not only was military disaster awaiting us, but moral disaster had engulfed us. And yet, if we do not give up hope, we can turn this around. We can make these documentaries. We can keep this broadcast going online. We can restore the real history of Canada and guide Canadians back to their true identity. And I'm convinced that there's nothing more important to do in public policy than that. All right. Well, in the last couple of minutes here that I have with you, um, let's wrap it up where we began with journalism. What do you see as the future? Like, is what's going on in the daily briefings of the Trump administration? Where, because I read a headline today that said it's the best journalism we've seen in a decade. Well, no kidding, because you didn't do your job during the time when Obama was in the office. Is my answer. But is that really good journalism, or is it just journalism patting itself on the back? Well, it is necessary to scrutinize those in power. You yes, know, it the is. The fact that many conservatives like Donald Trump doesn't mean that he should get a free ride. There's a lot wrong with him. Mm -hmm. But it is important that journalism allow people to understand their world better. And when a bunch of journalists who all wanted Hillary Clinton elected run story after story that basically says, yeah, yeah, I should have voted for Hillary, and never acknowledge her egregious weaknesses as a candidate and as a human being, that just further polarizes. That means that the people who already weren't reading them will not start, and that the two groups get further and further apart and communicate with one another less and less and less. There's this great, this big hoo-ha, because of some study that the Washington Post was all over this that said that Trump voters were motivated by racism. And what it turned out to mean was that Trump voters were much more likely to, to in poll questions to say, other ethnic groups like the Irish and the Jews have overcome discrimination, and blacks can too. And that if blacks worked harder, they would get ahead. And this was taken to be racism. In the eyes of the Washington Post, that wasn't something they argued. That was just self-evident, that if you did not regard blacks as permanently crippled by history, 
you were a bigot. And I thought, this is journalism that widens the divide. It does not narrow it. That doesn't mean Trump's off the hook. Trump is bombastic. He's ignorant. He's inconsistent. I think the man is, you know, I, I believe that he is temperamentally and morally unfit to be president. I've never made any secret of that. But for goodness sakes, give us some journalism that means next time we won't have a choice between Hillary Clinton, who was also completely unfit to be president, and Donald Trump. What is happening in the national discourse that the two great political parties managed to find the only two people in the nation who could have lost to each other under any imaginable circumstances, and the pundits piled on in a way that makes everybody want to scream? John, with that, I do have to stop you there. We've come to the top of the hour. That's an hour gone by really way too fast. I've enjoyed this conversation. Thank you very much. Good luck with your, uh, with your uh, project. Uh, I certainly wish it all the best. It's uh, Your website is John, johnrobson.ca? johnrobson.ca. And if you're okay. interested in supporting my work, I would be most grateful. Thanks very much for having me on the show. It has been a pleasure. Good night to you, sir, and we'll talk again soon. Hope to. Goodbye. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Once, uh, let's see, take care of that. Okay. We're going to take a bit of a break. I need a little bit of a breather and a chance to go off and answer nature's call. So with that, we will do this. So Nick is reloading and taking a much-needed break. Not that he needs one, but maybe it's a good thing. So if you want to fire him off an email, just uh, send it to nick at latenightcouncil.com. That's simple, huh? Nick at latenightcouncil.com. Or better yet, call now. Hey, I know he can talk forever, but you know what? If you're doing talk radio, you love the calls. 343-700-4390. That's 343-700-4390 for the Capital Region. And if you can't get through on that line or you live far, far, far away, like we're talking about Alaska, 1-844-562-4766. That's 1-844-562-4766. Now, our call service is automated. You won't be talking to a live person until you're live on air. Don't sweat it. Just follow the prompts and while you're on hold, and, and you'll be fine. night does not exist without advertisers so if you want to buy time you contact either myself jc at latenightcouncil.com or you can contact nick if you're more comfortable with him and of course i certainly understand that you can contact nick at latenightcouncil.com the ads are like really really cheap i mean you're gonna you're gonna love them okay we've, we've made them quite accessible Feedback is always welcome. Tell us what you like. Tell us what you don't like. 
And thanks for tuning in. Now, back to Nick at Night. All right. Thanks for staying with us, folks. The numbers again are 343-700-4390-844-562-4766. You can also join me over at Facebook by sending me a, a friendship request if you'd like and join the Nick at Night crowd. Uh, Nick's Night's crowd, I should say. You can also send me an email to nick at latenightcouncil.com. All right. Now, yes, I know the Leafs are losing 5-3. to three. They were down 4-1. to one. And pulled the within four to three, and I don't know what happened after that. I guess it's just Washington's night. But you know something? I was thinking about this earlier in the evening as I drove in here. No matter what team in Ontario you root for, be it the Leafs or the Senators, this has been an amazing year for hockey in this province. I don't. And I I say that as a fan of the sport. I am more of a of a hockey fan. Like I'm a hockey fan first, a Leaf fan second. I love watching a good game of hockey, a well-played, highly skilled game of hockey. I'm still stunned over that Carlson pass uh, to, um, what was his name, Hyman or something like that. It just He floated that thing from his own goal line down to the opposing blue line. His, his uh, winger took it, on the, took it on the fly in full stride, stayed on, stayed on side, and then just undressed the goalie. I mean, it was just ridiculous how he scored that goal. So it was a, an incredible play. And then you've got the Leafs, who should have been, who everybody predicted was going to be swept by four, you know, in four by the President's Trophy winners, the, the Washington Capitals. You know, I'm beginning to think, and I, this isn't a sports show, but I just, I just um, wanted to make this comment, that I'm beginning to think that winning the best team in the league during the regular season, the President's Trophy, is a curse. Because I, I know of at least a few times in recent memory, it's happened to Detroit, it's happened to a couple of other teams, win the President's Trophy and you get bounced in the first round because you spend all your energy trying to be the top team. And you got nothing left for the playoffs. So when everybody steps it up, you can't because you're all worn out after winning the President's Trophy. Anyway, I may be wrong on that, but it's just been a great year for hockey. It's been a great year to be an Ontario team fan, no matter which team you pull for. And there's plenty of reasons to, to like both teams. And at the last I saw, uh, Ottawa was up one to nothing, And I think the Leaf game is now concluded. Let me just check the score scores here. Uh, hit the refresh button. See, I could. Oh, it's 5-4, to four, game over. Okay, so the Leafs pulled within one, but it wasn't enough. And the Senators are leading at the moment one to nothing uh, with 4.50 left in the third period. So if they hang on, they'll push Boston to three games to one, which is pretty much the kiss of death. All right. With all that said, that's great. That's wonderful. Uh, you know, it's a great time to be uh, a hockey fan in this province. Now, speaking of Toronto, let me start with this. I just this, this kind of stuff. And I know it's, it's not really in the news, except that the police union, look, unions and I very seldom agree. I'm not saying we shouldn't be allowed to have unions. I just don't like the politics that unions practice. Like, I've always said, if I, I remember when I, I've worked for unions several times over my working history. And in one case, I drove for a company called Wolverine Freight out of Windsor I was a, when I was a truck driver. And it was a unionized shop. Now, it was a great place to work. I enjoyed the job. It was a daytime, 
you know, we, we drove day cabs. In other words, I got to go home in the evenings. Um, I traveled all over southern Ontario and Michigan and, and sometimes into Ohio and then back again. So it was all day trips and got paid a pretty good wage. I'm not going to argue with that. I wasn't complaining. Uh, but I had to join the union to be to be able to work there. And the union, I think, uh, at the time was taking about $40 a week off of my paycheck. I forget what the dues were now, but I thought they were exorbitant. And it was always struck me that if unions are such a good idea, why do they have to compel you to join them by writ of law? Why can't we just choose for ourselves whether or not we want the benefits that come with working for a union, working in a union atmosphere? Like if I want to join the union, then I should be free to do so. If I don't want to, then I don't get their protection and I don't get their, you know, the, the benefits that come from being in a union. If I want to work at a particular place, the union should have nothing to say about it except whether or not they're going to represent me at the bargaining table. Because for most of my working life, I have negotiated for myself at the bargaining table. Usually the negotiations go like this. Job pays 12 bucks an hour. You want it? Yep, thanks. And if it turns out I made a mistake and it wasn't enough, I'd say, well, you know, uh, let's talk about maybe a little more money an hour. And if the, the guy was agreeable, okay, I'd make a little more money. If he didn't, say, well, I'm going to have to go find work that pays a little better. And out the door I go. I've done that more times than I care to think about. That's called negotiating your salary. So... Anyway, so that just lays the groundwork for uh, my attitude about unions. And I, I often think they, they protect the worst. Uh, they have a habit. And not every union is like this, nor is every union member like this. But unions in general tend to protect those that should be fired because they are either incompetent, dangerous, or lazy. And I could sit here for the next hour regaling you about stories, anecdotal stories that I am well aware of, the details, because I was central to the story. But I'm not going to do that either. Just understand, unions and I are on opposite ends of the political and working scale. Uh, they should be allowed to exist, of course. We have the right of assembly. But at the same time, don't look for me to be buying any membership anytime soon. Okay, so this is out of Toronto, and it's about the police union down there. Members of Toronto's police union want the city to cut hundreds of thousands in funding from the city's pride parade. Okay, right there, we're on the same page. Okay, now here's why. In a letter to Mayor John Tory on Wednesday, members of the Toronto Police Association's LGBTQ... Why don't they just throw the whole alphabet in there? Internal Support Network asks him to pull... Ask Network has asked him to pull funding from Pride Toronto over a decision in January to disinvite officers from participating. The organization made the move after Black Lives Matter, uh, Toronto... Black Lives Matter Toronto demanded police be barred from the event because the group believes police participation could discourage some from taking part in pride festivities. That's you know what? Black Lives Matter should be listed as a terrorist organization. They really, really should. I, I have no use for them. I think they're a bunch of thugs. I have no patience for Black Lives Matter. Because every life matters. Black, white, green, yellow, orange, purple, who cares? This is a divisive group designed specifically to split society down racial seams and is completely counterproductive to a good and ordered society. So I got no use for them. So what they have to say about it, I don't care. My objection is not about that. My objection is why should the Gay Pride Parade Committee get any grant at all? Why are they being funded? 
why not just if if they want to have their parade such as it is let them buy a permit like everybody else and let them hold their parade the fact that they get our tax money is what really bothers me that's the part that drives me crazy so that's what i have that's you know what i could sum the whole thing up just <clears throat> In that, because I don't care what Black Lives Matter has to say about it. The fact is, they're using our tax money to support a parade that should not be supported. They should not get a grant. They should not get a loan. They should not be treated any differently than any other group. If I had a um, a straight a straight uh, parade, or you know, um, I can't even think of a, a, a comparable example. But if I held a parade to celebrate a certain aspect of my cultural life, should I get a grant for that? No, of course not. If I want a, a parade to celebrate uh, Beaver Tail Day in Killaloo, should the Killaloo Town Council give me give me a grant for that? No. I go and get a permit to hold a parade, and I invite people to participate in that parade. End of story. And yet here we are, and you wonder why the province is in a hole. Now, this comes from the municipality of Toronto. I get it. But guess what? There's only one taxpayer. And a lot of the money that Toronto gets comes from Queen's Park, which gets, which comes from ultimately a lot of that comes from Ottawa. So no matter how you slice it, we're all, we have all a vested interest in this. And I'm ranting and raving, I know. But doggone it, this kind of stuff makes me crazy. All right, so I thought I'd share that one with you. Now, okay, <laughs> you know, if it wasn't so sad, this would be absolutely hysterical. Uh, David Reevely has a great piece in the Ottawa Citizen today. Ontario scrambles to fix health, housing, and hydro all at once. You know, when, when um, I'm at home with the kids, my wife will leave us a list of things that, we need, that she'd like us to do while she's gone. Do the dishes, sweep the floor, you know, kind of tidy up after yourselves. It's what mothers do, right? They, have, they want to make sure the nest is well looked after in their absence. Fine. I don't have any problem with that. So it never fails. We'll be out there, and she'll be gone for the day. We know she's going to be home around 7.30, 8 o'clock at night, 8.30 at the latest. And about 20 minutes out, she'll text us, say, okay, I'm just leaving Barry's Bay. She stopped at the grocery store or something. And I'll look at the list, and there's been nothing done. Because we sat on our butts all day. Or we're doing other things except the things on the list. And I'll go, okay, everybody get in here. Mom's going to be home in 20 minutes. And all of a sudden, there's pandelirium. People are flying everywhere. Things are going up and down. People racing up and down the stairs. The dishes are flying. The broom is just going like crazy. Because we're trying to do it all at once. Guess how often we get the whole list done in 20 minutes? Almost never. Now... Why do I tell you that? Because that's what Kathleen Wynne's trying to do. The difference is her mess is a lot bigger than just an unswept floor and dirty dishes on the counter. She has housing, hydro, and health to worry about, all of which lay squarely at her feet. All right. So let me share this a little bit of this story with you. Premier Kathleen Wynne has two messages before her government presents its budget next week. We're going to do something about hospitals, and we're going to do something about housing madness in Toronto. I'll deal with that separately in a minute. Put another way, they're going to try and fix problems they helped create. 
That's the other thing about this. This is their mess to begin with. At the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario on Wednesday, on her second day of a two-day swing through Ottawa, through which she took no media questions, by the way. I suppose when your, your popularity rating is 12, you don't really want to talk to anybody who isn't pre-screened and going to be nice to you anyway, do you? Because what that means is out of 100 people, 12 think you're doing a good job. Oh, yeah, that's your office staff. And they're only saying it because you pay them. Anyway, I digress. In a chat in a chat in front of staff in, in their cafeteria, it was packed with more people standing in the back than sitting. Chief Executive Alex Munter told Wynn that Chio's mental health unit was at 128% capacity last week, meaning a lot of patients in the hospital didn't think... Uh, <coughs> meaning a lot of patients the hospital didn't think could be sent home were being sent to other units. That's a ridiculously high number, a dangerous number, a number that com that compromises care. Goes on to talk about the, the kind of situations they find them in, like what happens if there's a wreck on the 417 and 30 people suddenly flood into the hospital? What are we going to do? No answers except that she says, we have heard this. We've heard it loudly and clearly. How long has she been in office? In one form or another? Oh, since 2003? She's only hearing it now? Okay, anyway, we support you. Help is coming. Be calm. Yeah, okay. All right, now, so that's, here's a few numbers, here's a few numbers to go along with this. The Ottawa Hospital cut 180 jobs in 2014 and 2015. Chio cut 40 to 50, including nurses. All right. <laughs> and that's because they've been squeezing hospitals for years. I'm just... Let's see. Uh, let's see. Then, of course, they're going to take care of um, uh, housing. They're talking about social housing, and they're talking about the bubble, the the market bubble in uh, the housing crisis in Toronto. Because now, to buy a home in Toronto is going to cost you about nine hundred thousand dollars, uh, the best part of a million, in order to um, excuse me, in order to uh, get into a modest three bedroom home, you know. Uh, any place else, that's a quarter of a million bucks. If you, you know, if you, I know where there's one for two hundred forty thousand, you get seventy acres of land to go with it. Anyway, so she's trying to get all these things done at once, and that doesn't even touch hydro. So she is running around with her staff, throwing things in the air, hoping enough of it cl clutters the issues that nobody remembers what the heck she said, so they can't hold her accountable for it. It is absolutely ridiculous. It's it's like a three-ring circus without the rings. But you know what, folks? This is our circus and she's our monkey. Whether we like it or not. So I just, when I saw that, I just had to bring that one up because, oh, man. I, I had this image in my head. I know exactly what she's going through. Uh <laughs> Because we've done a miniature version of that uh, more times than one. Now, uh, Denley has a good piece today in the in the Citizen as well, and it's about auto insurance. Did you know? Maybe you did, maybe you didn't. Uh, if you read the Citizen today, then you already know this. Um, Ontario has the safest highways in North America, the lowest accident rates, and the lowest death rates. Unless, of course, you live along the 17, Highway 17 from Arn Prior out to, oh, I don't know, how far up there do you want to go? But certainly between Deep River and uh, Arn Prior, there's wreck after wreck after wreck out there. The Eganville Leader is kind of my barometer. It's a weekly paper that comes obviously out of Eganville. 
And if there's not a wreck on the 417 on the front page, it's a rare day. That is one of the bloodiest stretches of highway, I think, in the province. I could go on and on about why it's not four lanes. It should be all the way to Manitoba. But no, we can't have that. We got to have windmills. We got to have solar power. We got to have green energy. How about safe highways? How about, you know, infrastructure that actually matters and makes a difference in people's lives other than putting them out of business and driving them out of their homes? All right. Anyway, so uh, the report, uh, she's just received a report uh, that says, <laughs> okay, I've already told you some of it, the fact that we have the lowest accident rate, uh, the safest highways, uh, and, and, you know, just all the reasons we should have the lowest uh, insurance rates in the country. Oh, contraire, though, my good friend, it is nothing like that at all. As a matter of fact, it's the opposite. Here it is. It's no surprise to learn that Ontario's auto insurance regime is as is an expensive mess. But the numbers in a new report for the provincial government are still shocking. Ontario drivers are paying four billion, that's four with a B billion, a year more than they would if Ontario rates were at the Canadian average. That's more than five hundred dollars a year for every car insured in the province. The high rates are aren't because Ontario's are especially bad drivers. In 2013, Ontario's fatality rate was the lowest ever recorded and its injury rate was the second lowest in North America. Accident rates continue to fall, but our premiums are still the highest in the country. It's no wonder this report was quietly re released just before Easter uh, <coughs> with a bland press release that masks what is actually a screaming indictment of our auto insurance system. One imagines this wasn't the result of government uh, the government hoped for when it appointed insurance expert David Marshall to examine the system back in 2013. And the article goes on to lays out what he thinks is wrong. You know what I think one of the big problems is with it? There's no, you know, ask yourself this. And I, I would love, you know what would be an interesting experiment? Try to open an insurance company and compete for people's home, car, uh, home and property insurance. And just see what regulations are in your way, what you have to do. Now, look, I understand that like a bank, an insurance company probably, and I'm, I'm guessing at this because I don't know for sure. I'm no expert by any stretch. I'm just using logic and reason here. That if you were going to open a, um, an insurance company, let's say ABC Insurance of Killaloo, okay, and you wanted to offer people a reasonable rate on their car insurance, and that's where you want to start your business because you saw these rates and you said, okay, I can do better than that. I know I can. And make a good living for myself and provide a good service for my customers. And you want to come in at, let's say, 10 or 15 points below what everybody else is charging. That's the way the market works, you know. If somebody sees prices that are too high, they can do a better job for less money, provide a better service. They come in, step into the marketplace, and by doing so, force their competition to bring their prices down. That's the way the free market works. But in order to do that, you're going to have to have some collateral, some liquid cash, so that if payments are required, because with every insurance company, you know there's going to be an accident. You know you're going to have to pay out money to repair cars and fix broken bodies and things like that. So you do have to have a certain amount of liquidity. So I can understand you have some kind of bare standard. Okay, let's say you had to have a million in the bank in cash. 
to start. And as your premiums come in, you can build that up so that, you know, you if if I'm sure there's some kind of standard where you have to be able to pay out 10 or 15 percent of all your of all your uh, customers if they if they all made a claim of X amount of dollars, you have to have that much money in reserve, right? Just in case, I get that, but I have a feeling the regulations that surround this industry don't allow for much new competition. The companies that are there, there's you've got. I couldn't list them all, and it doesn't really matter. But there's a handful of companies that provide all the insurance. Okay, and I'm not even talking about health life insurance. But I'm just talking about home and auto, or property property insurance. You've got a handful to pick from. So the fewer you have, the less choice you have. Therefore, the less opportunity you have to pit one against the other and bid for your business. It's exactly the opposite of a free market. So to me, one of the best ways to help deal with this is to allow the free market to do what it does best. Compete with itself to keep prices down and quality up. We have forgotten in this province, that is the free market that got us here. A lot of people think the free market is, oh, it's terrible, it's horrible, we got to have the government run and regulate everything. You know, if you leave somebody in prison long enough, they won't want freedom because they won't know what to do with it. You open the prison cell door, you open up the front gate, say, hey, man, go have a great life. If they've been in prison for 30 years, they won't be able to do that. You know, they won't be able to cope. Because for 30 years, everybody's told them what time to get up, what to wear, when to go and eat, what you're going to have for lunch. You know, every the whole day is structured. And now you pull all that away and they wander around lost because they have no idea how to do it for themselves. They've forgotten. And the free market's like that. When you take that away and you give people very few options, they don't know how to fend for themselves in the free market. So that's what's wrong with this. It's the same thing that's wrong, by the way, with um, the uh, housing crisis. Like, there's another story in the paper today about how they're going to bring out rent controls and, and they're going to cool the overheated marketplace in Toronto. The best way to cool it is to leave it alone. Don't mess with it. The housing market will self-correct. Now, people will say, oh, well, a lot of people are going to lose. They're going to... Yes. That's true. There is a risk. But there's a risk in everything. Well, you're going to put people out of their homes. No, I'm not. Because if the government hadn't gotten involved in the marketplace in the first place and just allowed people to compete for business against each other so that the customer is the one who wins in the end, you know where this is really, really demonstrated the best? There's two areas I can think of of how this really works, and it's a great demonstration. Number one is the breakup of Ma Bell. How many options do you have for telephone and uh, the ability to communicate? Dozens. Dozens. There's dozens of Internet companies. There's dozens of telephone companies. There's dozens of cell phone companies. Okay, you've got all kinds of choice. And what do you think? Look at the price of long distance. How many cell phone packages now give you North America-wide free calling? When I was a kid, back in the 1960s and 70s, oh, God, do I feel old. If we got a phone call from a long-distance phone call, everybody in the house had to be quiet because, oh, it's important. Dad's getting a phone call from 
Manitoba or Detroit, an international phone call. And it had to be short because it was really expensive. Today, I could call Arkansas for free. I can call Calgary for nothing. Well, it's built into the cost of my monthly plan. Okay, but I know that. You've got choice. The other area where it's really easy to see is in the car market. How many different makes and models of cars are there, are there out there? What do customers do? What do dealers do to win your business? They compete with each other like crazy. No interest. They'll finance you for 96 months. They'll give you billions for your trade-in. They'll do this. They'll do that. Heck, they'll bring you coffee and bagels in bed and, breakf and breakfast in bed in the morning if it means you'll buy their car. I took a, a Jeep Wrangler for a test drive about, I don't know, let's say three weeks ago, a month ago. Great. Uh, look, I loved it. You know, I like off-road vehicles. Jeep's a great, great brand. Uh, you know, I love Hondas for cars, but if I'm going to go off the beaten track, I want something that's going to get uh, my Honda Civic isn't up to the task. Okay, you get the two different purposed vehicles. Okay, so I thought, hey, let's go take it. To, just go out and take a test drive. Walked in, they treated me great. They offered me coffee. You know, we walked around the vehicle. I looked at all the features. The salesman was polite. He was very well mannered. Went and got the keys. We went for a little drive. And you know what? He's called me three times since then, telling me about great deals and how I can save even more money. It's a classic example of how the free market works when the government leaves it alone. That's how you keep prices down. Ask yourself this. How much were, was, uh, when I was selling cars back in 1989, I sold for Nissan and a Pathfinder, a fully booted and spurred Pathfinder, was 30,000, 30, let's say 33 or $34,000. Can you still get a vehicle in that price range? You're darn right you can. Now, there's a lot that are a lot more expensive than that. I was over to, at a Chevy dealership out in Pembroke, and there was a brand new, brand spanking new, uh, I think it was a three-quarter ton truck. It had a uh, king cab on it and a full eight-foot box, all booted and spurred, shiny. Oh, look great. I looked at the sticker on it, it's over $60,000 for this truck. Walked into the showroom, and there's a brand new Corvette ZR1 sitting on the showroom floor. It had 32 miles on it. The only miles on it were from the assembly line to the back of the car, a car carrier, off the car carrier, and into the yard, and then into the showroom. All polished and shiny. You know what that sticker was? $70,000. A pickup truck, only $10,000 less than a Corvette ZR1, go figure. Anyway, but my point is the price of cars has not dramatically risen as fast as you would think it would have over the last 30 years. So this is an example of the free market keeping checks and balances on itself when the government keeps its hands off the marketplace. Here's another little piece of history maybe you weren't aware of. Did you know that there was a huge stock market crash in 1920? Were you aware of that? It was at least as big as Black Friday in, the, on, on, in September of 1929. You know the difference between the two was? In 1920, yes, the stock market collapsed. It absolutely did. 
But the government did not try to do anything about it, and the market rebounded and gave birth to the Roaring Twenties, a time of wealth and prosperity that we I don't think we've seen matched. So what happened in 1929? The government got involved and tried to prevent it and tried to meddle in the marketplace and led to a 10-year depression. Now, I'm making a lot of complicated things very simple for the sake of this discussion. But in one case, the government didn't interfere. The market bounced back. Yes, there was some pain. But overall, it was led to one of the best decades in our history. Why do you think they called it the Roaring Twenties? That's why. Okay, so anyway... Whenever the government gets in the way of the free market, it always costs us. And it costs us more and more and more. And the more heavily involved they get in the marketplace, the more damage they do, and the harder it is for the economy to function properly. That's why we're in debt. That's why people are struggling to find housing. That's why food prices are through the roof. And that, my friends, is why energy is so expensive. Because the government can't keep its hands off areas it has no business being in in the first place. With that said, we'll take a little break. When we get back, we'll have more on The Naked Night Show right after this. of the Greater Ottawa Truckers Association, the voice of independent truckers in the Ottawa area, and proud supporters of Nick at Night. Every day we go to work to help build a better eastern Ontario, and safety is our top priority. Every start of the shift, our drivers perform inspections on their truck, so we ensure that our drivers go home to their families each night, and you, the public, have confidence that the big truck beside you is safe. If you have any issues relating to any size truck, I encourage you to contact me at 613-738-1639. Let's build a better, fatality-free Ottawa together. All right. Well, why don't we take a phone call? We've got one in the queue, so let's take it. Uh, click on that. Hang on, caller. I'll get to you in just a second. There you are. Good evening. Welcome to the Nick Knight Show. Who am I talking to? See, now you can actually say line one, and I'll know it's you. <laughs> I'll know it's me. <laughs> it's Mike. Hi, Mike. How you doing? You used to do that on CFRA when you did those uh, crash. Uh, okay, we're just going to go to the phone lines. Line two, you're on the air. Who the heck is line two? There's probably 12 of us in there. <laughs> well, there's, right now there's only one line, so you're it. So what can I, I do for you? I had a conversation with uh, Robson earlier. I really enjoyed that. Hmm. And, uh, you know, it struck me, too, as I was listening to him talk about the, his new ideas for how to support projects we like and it, it does kind of sound and you know you and i discussed the crowd uh you know funding options at one point uh when we you know we're looking at doing uh this sort of side project 
but, you know, and it does kind of feel like you're asking everybody for handouts. But I think we, if we are, uh, you know, like the listeners, if we're fed up with bad, you know, news that is not, I don't like this term fake news. I just, I mean, it's always been really biased and it's gotten a lot worse and it just is what it is. But I think there's something to be said for, um, you know, I think we're going to have to start supporting ourselves. And then, you know, as I got involved helping John get uh, his thing going, you know, and, and, you know, we were getting sponsors. I'm thinking to myself, well, you know, if people support those sponsors, they'll be more encouraged to continue supporting the show to keep it on the air. And I, I, think, I think it's almost incumbent upon us to start helping ourselves. Because we want to educate ourselves, and we want to educate other people, and if we want to educate other people, we need, you know, that source coming at us all the time. People like you or John or, uh, uh, you know, Robson or Council or, you know, the various guests that you bring right. on. Mm-hmm. So, anyways, uh, I was, I was uh, of course, the 1920s brought to mind uh, Calvin Coolidge. And I was thinking about, the, I, I think about Coolidge a lot. He, he's somebody I haven't spent enough time getting to know. But uh, if, if for all conservative-minded people, they, they know about Reagan, they know about Thatcher and Churchill, and they investigate them to a little bit. But they really need to take a good look at Calvin Coolidge. And Glenn Beck has, he does these serials with his uh, radio show. Right. And there are multiple parts. And if you go, I'll have to find the link, but he just did a recent series on Calvin Coolidge, and it was really excellent. It gives just a a good overview of of who he was, what his attitudes towards government were, uh, his attitudes towards free market, and, um, you know, and of course the results were the the Roaring Twenties. So this has been tried and tested, and, and Coolidge was a huge influence on Reagan, I really believe there's only been a few truly conservative presidents, and Coolidge and Reagan are about the only two after, say, Lincoln. Yeah, you, it's very possible. I certainly know Woodrow Wilson's not in that uh, not in that uh, cadre. I think that Woodrow Wilson was probably the first socialist, uh, true socialist dictatorship, uh, and I say that yeah, loosely, understanding think, it wasn't. Teddy Roosevelt was a progressive, but I think his 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 evolving into that movement was i think he was showing signs of it while he was president but i think his true uh foray into that political philosophy was later in life but because mm. even he even teddy roosevelt and i got the letter even he was a eugenist he thought he thought it was madness that we don't selectively breed each other yeah well that's teddy that's roosevelt, the guy on mount rushmore yeah, well, he he's there because of his Rough Riders. But anyway, there were there was all, eugenics. Eugenics is an interesting conversation because it's it's amazing how widespread it was uh, amongst it the um, I, I educated don't of the day. It went away. Well, it's still there. It's certainly, I, I just yeah. It just take it um, comes in different forms. That's all. Oh yeah, but I mean that's what progressivism really is. It's uh, all about. Um, you know, it's interesting that the Nazis looked down on the communists, even though they shared the same philosophy, really. They looked at the communists as sort of the poor man's socialism, and they were sort of the evolved, 
upper class socialists. They were, they were a better class of socialists, if you will. And in many ways, the progressives see themselves over the, you know, over the Nazi communist type movements. They see themselves as the, the higher model. Because yeah. I think they're much better at putting a happy face. I mean, you know, you, you look at what was done to the Jews in the Final Solution and, and the other people that were killed in the Holocaust, and, and that's just a horror show. But if you look at the 60 million babies that have been killed just in the United States in 40 years, that's health care. Yeah, that's what they call it. <laughs> well, <laughs> I have another I mean, name for it. What was, that's like, that's as... That's like saying uh, the Holocaust was alternate living for Jews. I mean, you wouldn't get away with that, but yet they totally get away with the bastardization of language today. So I think that makes it somewhat more dangerous. Yeah, well, look, the problem with it is as they <clears throat> every time see one of the problems we as uh, conservatives have, and I'm painting with a pretty broad brush there, um, uh, people who support Western ideals and democracy. Uh, let's broaden it out from conservatives because a lot of people do. But uh, the problem we have is that if we win the battle, we think we won the war, where those who yep. oppose what we believe in, they only see it as a never battle. They, they never quit. So they refine their oh, message. Never give up. Yeah, exactly. They, they have this never-die attitude, and they just refine their message. They learn how to package it better and bring it back a little more slick the next time. Dalton, McGin Dalton McGinty's education package that got booted by the people of the province got brought back under Kathleen Wynne as a refined version of what he wanted to do, and it got passed with no problem at all because people weren't thought they'd beaten this already, and it went away. Well, it never goes away. It just You have to remain constant, dil constantly diligent. And that's what we get. We get lazy. I I actually had some thoughts after our, you know, once I once the podcast went up and I was able to go back and reflect on it a little. Um, you know, I could I could see when we were discussing. I could see what you were trying to pull out of me, and I knew it at the time as well. But I was I was deliberately going the opposite direction as you because I know you were trying to get me to throw planks down. Like I want to get rid of this tax. I want to get rid of this. I think you were looking for concrete type stuff. Yes. And, and the reason I was deliberately pulling way back into a more of a philosophical perspective is because I think my conclusion on things is that we've, we've lost our foundation. And, and I think, at, you know, like, we're all common sense type people. We know that you can fix the house all day long, you can change this, fix that, but if that foundation isn't right, Nothing you do above is going to matter. That's true. And, but... and I think we've we, and I think we've lost that. I think we've lost a sense of our history. I think that's why, for example, John Robson's projects are so important. I think that's probably why people are even drawn to history because I think they realize they're they're missing a lot of details. Well, not and only I think that, when they find out stuff. You know, when you start learning something, I, I never even knew that before. It changes your perspective. Oh yeah, Even like that was kind of reflected when he was saying he had a conversation with somebody who didn't like climate deniers, but you throw a few facts at them that they've never even heard before, and they look at you like, "Where the heck did you get that?" Yeah, yeah, I hear that a lot. One of the things that um, <clears throat> I was I was started watching a series on Netflix, and talk about changing perspective. This is just a little how how little information can change your whole. Not maybe not your point of view, but your whole perspective. 
It's about uh, it's about World War II and the um, drug abuse in the German army and in its elite units during World War II. They actually invented, or no, got from Japan a synthetic compound that we now know as um, uh, uh, meth, crystal meth. And the German army was taking 35 million pills a week while they rampaged around Europe. And by the time the war ended, a lot of the soldiers were strung out and drug addicts, and that's why they couldn't perform at the levels they were used to because the one thing about crystal meth is it raises your ability to concentrate, your energy output goes through the roof, you lose empathy for other human beings, and that's why they could do some of the stuff that they did. And it's just you, all of a sudden... Every, and the Allies weren't free of it either. They got involved in, in what we need speed and bennies and gave it to some air crews. And they were doing amazing things that other normal people would never consider because it was suicidal. And when you look at it through that lens, all of a sudden you go, wow, that it, it doesn't change the rightness or wrongness of the war. But it sure does put a whole new light on it that you'd never considered before. Well, I think that, you know, uh, you know, our the libertarians who identify as libertarian in Canada and from, you know, the way G.J. described them, they are not quite the libertarians that I think of. But unfortunately, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm almost even beginning to realize that at least in Canada, those terms conservative and libertarian may be too far gone to try to rehabilitate. You, you know, they, it, it just at some point you have to redefine yourselves a little bit and I mean, if, if we're advocating something new, it's not really that it's new, but people haven't really thought in those terms in this country. You don't really hear politicians describe uh, policies or philosophy. The reason I was pushing the philosophy so much more is because if we get our philosophy straightened out, and we're not always going to agree on everything, that's the nature of, of independent thought. I mean, we're all going to have... The American founders, you would have thought, would have been a love fest, and they were at each other's throats. Oh, yeah. So that's just the nature of passionate people with a lot of information and, and opinion. So we learn to sort it out, but we do kind of come up with a common thread of, a, of a, you know, our ideas of limited government and, and liberty. And, and from that philosophy and how we construct that, then all of those other decisions, whether it's taxes or, you know, things like carbon or regulations or agencies, what, whatever we're going to determine should or shouldn't the government be doing, that's going to flow from that. You don't have to think it out. Then you don't get into these situations where, um, you know, well, you've got one party saying they're for it, the other party saying they're against it. You, you know, and you get this mix-max of ideas that don't even make sense so i think if you come at it from a philosophical point of view so if we start to be more more comfortable with what we believe and how why we get to those conclusions i was also struck by things like i was watching before your show there I, one of the guys i follow is this matt walsh and now he's part of the blaze and he has his own podcast and whatnot yeah and he had posted a little interview he did with some radio show to promote his book He's a very outspoken Christian guy. He's very anti-abortion, very, you know, traditional marriage and so on. Right. And the guy he was being interviewed by was a very anti-religious guy. And you could tell the way the interview was going. And I, I, was, I was struck by the fact that we're sort of 
language has become a bit of a battleground. We play semantics with language. And, you know, we've convinced ourselves that secularism is the absence of faith. In other words, somehow reason is over faith. But the truth is, secularism is also faith. Secularism, or, you know, if, if we call it paganism, or if we call it atheism, if we call it environmentalism, they're all faith-based. Right. And at some point, the, the models of government, the decision-making, the policies, the, the different parties, they're all drawing on their belief structure. So either it's going to be a Christian-Judeo uh, philosophy that puts the emphasis on the individual and respect with each other, or you go with a, a more of a collectivist model where the group is more important than any individual, and maybe the planet's even more important than the, than the group, and, you know. Yeah, You notice that's... how it's, uh, it's pollution when a man cuts a tree, but it's nature when a beaver cuts a tree. Yeah, funny what that. What the heck is that? Uh, well, that's a good question, and on that I'm going to have to hold you there, Mike. Great call. Thank you very much. Thanks. All right. We're going to take a short break. When we get back, I'm going to play you a clip by a group called ARPA, which is, let me put my glasses on here so I can read the small print, Association for Reformed Political Action. Um, they want to raise uh, the awareness of a bill called Bill 89, and when you hear what it's about, you'll be glad that you uh, stayed tuned to the show this evening because this goes way over the line. I'll save that till we get back right after this on the Nick at Night Show. space on the corner of Bank and Heron. His encyclopedic knowledge of all things mechanical and his no-bull honesty has resulted in his second move. He now operates a huge facility on Cleopatra, eight bays and an expert staff that operate all in the same wavelength. Honesty, integrity, try to save the customers some money and headaches, but fix it right the first time. Irwin's Out of Motion, 34, Cleopatra. Tell them Council sent you. That'll make him smile. Okay, as I promised, I have this clip from ARPA. It runs about uh, three minutes and I can tell you exactly, three minutes, 20 seconds long. So it's not that long, um, but you need to hear this. Now, uh, the gentleman, uh, this group, ARPA, stands for the Association of Reformed um, Political Action, I think is what it stands for. Anyway, they're a group called ARPA. They have chapters all over the, all over the place. And uh, I'm not sure, it doesn't say who the speaker is, or I give him credit. But anyway, let me do this so you can hear 
this. Ontario's Bill 89, if passed, will replace the Child and Family Services Act completely. This legislation governs child protection services, foster care and adoption services and more. We have some serious concerns about this new bill. The governing principle in child services is to promote the best interests of the child. So in deciding to remove a child from a home or deciding where a child should be placed for foster care or adoption, it is the child's best interests that govern those decisions. So how does the government determine what the child's best interest is? Ontario law currently lists a few key factors that government officials should consider. Bill 89 adds to that list gender identity and gender expression as factors to be considered in determining the best interests of the child. Now, of course, children who experience gender dysphoria need love and support, but the current approach to these issues by many government officials is ideological and harmful to children. Bill 89 would bring us one step closer to government enforcement of the new gender ideology on all families. An article in QP Briefing reports a uh, concerning statement from Ontario's Minister of Child and Family Services. Minister Koto said that it could be abuse for an LGBT teen to be told that the way they identify is wrong and that they should change. Quote, I would consider that a form of abuse when a child identifies one way and a caregiver is saying, no, you need to do this differently, unquote. So what happens when your response to a child's dysphoria is considered abuse by some government official? Minister Koto said, quote, if it's abuse and if it's within the definition, a child can be removed from that environment and placed into protection where the abuse stops, end quote. Now let's just review that for a moment. If your child struggles with her or his identity and you counsel your child to find their identity in Jesus Christ and to align their sexual identity with the body God made for them, then, in Minister Koto's mind, that constitutes abuse and could be grounds for taking your child and putting them into protection. So, what can you do? Well, Bill 89 has not yet been debated in the legislature or reached second reading. Now is the time to contact MPPs and to raise public awareness of the real impacts of these changes on families. ARPA Canada is creating a radio ad that will be sponsored by ARPA chapters across the province. If you want to get this radio ad onto a station in your area, please contact us at info at arpacanada.ca or 1-866-691-2772. And as always, we've created easy mail letters for you on this issue at easy.arpacanada.ca. Please take five minutes to contact your MPP today to express your concerns. And please also call your MPP and ask him or her to vote against Bill 89. Thank you. Okay, so there you have it. This bill, if it goes forward as, as it's represented, will be so far over the line as far as what the state should do. Look, I'm all for protecting children. There are real cases of abuse. Some of them in the press, we talked about it last week with that RCMP officer and his, his wife abusing that 11-year-old boy. Nobody argues. There's no one, certainly not me, would argue, say, oh, that's the sanctity of the family. We can't, we can't interfere. Are you kidding? The kid's life was in danger. Of course, in that case, we have an obligation. But the question is, where do you draw the line, right? When is it 
okay to interfere in, in, in the normal course of family affairs behind closed doors to insert the power of the state and overturn what parents decide is best for the kids. Well, in the case of the former RCMP officer, that was clearly, you know, within the bonds of reason and logic and certainly in the child's best interest to do so. Nobody's arguing that. This. Now, whether you take his, his uh, Christian point of view, because it could be anything. It could be maybe you're, you just want your kids to think differently than the state wants them to think. Maybe you say, look, I don't like this environmentalism. I think it's nonsense. And here's why. And little Johnny goes to school the next day and says, you know, my daddy really doesn't agree with this. With all this stuff. And he was telling me this and he was telling me that. And the teacher goes, oh, really? The next thing you know, during recess, she places a phone call. Voila. All of a sudden, it's or dealing with the issue as the way he painted it. Since when does the state have the right to come in and tell you what to teach your kids about their own sexuality? Or the way they view the world? I thought this was a free country. And the whole point was you're supposed to be able to raise your kids as you want them raised. Not the way the state wants to. The state is there to defend and protect families, not to rip them apart. No matter what your theology, no matter what your worldview, as long as what you're teaching your children is benign, okay, and isn't going to harm anybody else in the process. And by harm, I'm talking about physical harm. I'm not talking about, oh, you can't tell me that. You hurt my feelings. That's not the kind of harm I'm talking about. For that, we just need a thicker skin. Okay? I mean, the world's not fair. There's no doubt about it. But the state has no right to walk into your home and say to you, we think you're being abusive to your kids because you don't think hugging the tree is worthwhile. Unless it's with a chainsaw. Don't you know? And then all of a sudden your child's gone. Or you want to get a child who's struggling with some aspect of sexuality counseling because you think that this is wrong. That the way they view the world under these circumstances is simply them struggling through their teen years. Is there, a mo is there more of a time of turbulence in a person's life than when they're teenagers? Not only is their body changing, but so is their mental capacity to think and, and react um, reasonably to inputs. All that stuff. Temptations, the whole hormone thing. It's the most turbulent time in your life. And you're going to get it wrong, and you're going to make mistakes, and you're going to try stuff. You're, 20 years from now, you're going to go, boy, was that ever stupid. And I'm glad that, that Dad was there to give me a kick in the pants and sort it out for me or give me a good role model to follow. Or Mom was there for me to lean on and gently point me in the right direction. What business has a state got with interfering with that? I'm telling you, friends, this is enough to make you just lose your mind. So I hope you take his advice. Now, the trouble is, you need to do that no matter what the trouble is. But the trouble is, we have a government that thrives on this stuff. We have a, tr we have a government in Queen's Park who thinks it's okay to put forward a curriculum designed by a convicted, confessed pedophile and won't step back from it, won't even apologize for it. So am I surprised to see this? Oh, I'd love to say yes. I can't.
This is a natural extension of the kind of people that are now running the province. They have a worldview they don't want that they want your kids to have, whether you like it or not. And quite frankly, I don't only not like it, I I I just loathe it. I think it's absolutely ridiculous. It, it, no, it's, ridiculous is too soft a word. It's outrageous. I, I don't know if I can think of a word. I'm not Shakespeare. I don't have 50,000 words to express my loathing of what the government's doing. I'm limited to about three or 4,000. This is just not their ballywick. This is not what the government is supposed to be doing. This is not making sure that society can operate free, as freely as possible so that you can live your life based on your own strengths and weaknesses, succeed or fail as you will, which is the way the government is supposed to operate. Well, I know we've long since passed that milestone, but we gotta, we we got to put an end to this. We have to put an end to this. This government and everyone who holds this ideology must be vanquished. And we must never forget what they're trying to do and what they've tried to do and what they will continue to try to do even if they get tossed from office. This is what Mike and I were talking about. The constant diligence it takes in order to make sure that the future for our children is safe for them to grow up in without meddling by the state when a, a certain political point of view becomes the, the sweetheart of the day. All right. I'm done ranting and raving. It has been a wonderful show. I certainly hope you enjoyed it. I know I certainly did too. So I'm going to wrap it up here, and I'll see you all again next week. In the meantime, ubi caritas et amor. Deus ibi est. Good evening. God bless. Don't let anything disturb your peace. And may you have a fair wind and a following sea. Money that I had, I spent it in good company. And all the harm I've ever done Alas, it was to none but me And all I've done for want of wit To memory now I can so fill to me the parting glass. Good night and joy be to you all. So fill to me the parting glass and drink a health whatever befalls. Then gently rise and softly call good night and joy be to you all of all the comrades that it I had they're sorry for my going away and all the sweethearts that e'er I had they'd wish me one more day but since it fell into my lot that I should rise and you should not, I'll gently rise and softly call. Good night and joy be.
Good night.